0: What's up, everybody? It is Emmett, your Nuclear Barbarian, here with another installment of the weekly Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Today, we are going to return to our theme of RTOs, Regional Transmission Organizations, and what it does to nuclear. And I've brought somebody on to talk about that, my new buddy, Aiden Swanson. How's it going, man?
1: Good. It's going great.
0: So, before we get into... This research you've just done, I wanted to learn a little bit about you. What's your deal? Where are you from?
1: Well, yeah. What's going on? I'll get into it. Well, thank you for having me on. I am from Omaha, Nebraska. I grew up here and partially in Dublin, Ireland as well. So I really appreciated your episode about Irish. Oh. Yeah, my mom's from Dublin. So kind of went back and forth as a kid. But yeah, I would say, well, I'm a senior undergrad here at. Creighton University. And then I got into nuclear in a little bit of a roundabout way. But originally, I was on the Andrew Yang campaign in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And I heard him talking about thorium. And I was like, this seems really interesting. And I was trying to learn everything I possibly could about Yang. And I went down a thorium YouTube rabbit hole and like sat in the library for like five hours just watching these YouTube videos. And, and yeah, so I... I worked on the Yang campaign and was pretty vocal about nuclear through that. Love Andrew. I know he's very pro-nuclear. I one That's time I went is. up to him. Yeah. 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 I went up to him at a at a conference and I was like, hey, thank you for supporting nuclear. Like I like we we really need that in our for our future. And he goes, yeah, without nuclear, we're completely effed. And I was like, yep. All right. (laughs) That's my guy. Cool. So yeah, he's, he's a really cool guy. And then since then, I've just been doing advocacy work locally, talking to everybody I can, going to some environmental marches, finding out that nuclear is not always accepted by the mainstream environmentalists and Every single paper I've written in college has to do with energy or nuclear. Every class, I turn it into a nuclear energy class. Amazing. Yeah, it's a bit about me.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's really exciting. It's... Cool to see this. I was actually just talking to Heather Hoff yesterday, actually. I guess the episode comes out tomorrow about how excited we both are that there's this new crop of young people coming up who don't have all these Cold War fears of nuclear and are pretty stoked on it. So it sounds like you fit right into that demographic, which is rad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, around campus, people like literally know me as the nuclear energy guy. Um, <laughs> but I wear my shirts everywhere. And I think every single one of my friends is a little bit tired of the nuclear <laughs> discussion. But yeah, it, it is shocking the the level of acceptance and just the general... I think from kids my age, they literally just don't understand why someone would not be in favor of nuclear yeah. power, which mm-hmm. is like very encouraging to hear after my run-ins with people who are like very gassed at why someone would be in favor of nuclear power. And so I think a lot of kids my age are, you know, something I talk about a lot is like by 2050, when we're supposed to reach the the net zero to like Mm -hmm. be for our young generation future, anything built in the Green New Deal in terms of variable renewable energy will not. Be existing. We're gonna to have to do it all over again right. um, if we build it today. So I think that sense of like enduring security that a sixty to eighty year life of a nuclear power plant gives is uh, really appealing for kids my age. So yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, and whether or not it can even be extended beyond eighty years, I mean, we right. don't know yet. Yeah. Which is I w- it'll be exciting when we find out because we will yeah. win. Yeah. So. Let's get into this research that mm-hmm. you've just completed. You reached out to me, I think a few months ago and said you were looking at decommissionings, and then your research started to shift into some other areas. So what'd you look into and what'd you find out?
1: Yeah, so um originally it was really about decommissionings, but I wanted the dependent variable to be really more nuclear specific but that ended up just having a whole lot of data problems. And so I ended up discussing uh, clean electricity production in general. And so looking at some explanatory factors for that and looking how nuclear played into that in all 48 states, and then parsing the states out by regulated and deregulated states. And I know you just had uh, Meredith on to talk about this a little bit and you know, I tweeted at her a few times and got her input. So that was great. She's, yeah, she's, she's great. So, she's so generous. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So essentially, I ran a time series regression analysis on annual electricity production in state with the dependent variable being clean electricity production as a percent of the total in state mm-hmm. production, and in all 48 states, deregulated states, had 8.5% less, less of their energy from clean sources. And Now, of course, there's interconnections that go into that, and not all electricity produced in a single state is consumed in that state, sure. but it was general. And yeah, and then I think one of two, two of probably the most interesting pieces that I found, and something that I was really trying to expose I mean, obviously you're not supposed to go into research with uh, necessarily pre <laughs> totally. exceptions but I mean, I think the literature is very supportive of this. So it was part of my hypothesis, but that natural gas pricing in deregulated states, because as we all know, natural gas is, has a lot of synergies with integrating renewable energy onto the grid. And in the deregulated states, generally the production is profitability dependent. So you've got, if the natural gas price is high, one would assume that less natural gas would be used in a deregulated state, or at least the use of that would be less attractive. And so I found that like a $1 increase in the price of natural gas resulted in a $1 0.14% decrease in electricity from clean sources, essentially saying that in deregulated states, their clean electricity is dependent, or at least in some sense, dependent upon low natural gas prices, which I found very interesting. And that was significant to the 95% level. And then in regulated states, the natural gas price was not significant to any level, which was the only, which was the only independent variable that was not significant to any level. So I had I had one, two, I had seven independent variables. And in all 48 states, then the regulated model and the deregulated model. So there are 21 observations throughout the three models, and natural gas price was the only one that wasn't significant to any level in regulated states. So to me, that, that says that in non-RTO states, you have a, a system that is less reliant upon low natural gas prices. And in seeing the precipitous rise in natural gas prices recently, I, I think this, new, this paradigm of low natural gas prices acting as a crutch Mm-hmm. for renewable integration might be over, which I mean, I don't want to speak in absolutes, of course, but sure. I I do think that that's going to be a huge factor in the coming years as we try to progress the energy transition. So
0: that is some pretty fantastic information. So I mean, I'm thinking a few things when I hear that, right? One of them is that the arguments that people tend to make about the advantages RTOs offer renewables doesn't necessarily mean that those renewables will decarbonize the grid to the extent that advocates say.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you just look at the descriptive statistics of the regulated versus deregulated states, the mean of the electricity price, which has been demonstrated uh, many a time that the deregulated states had almost a whole dollar. Their their per kilowatt hour price to retail electricity was a dollar higher than the regulated states. And now, of course, there's a lot of other factors that could go into that. Sure. And regulated states in the northwest tend to have a lot of hydro, and uh, Idaho has a lot of geothermal, and so does Utah. And those are kind of geographically dependent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I found that really fascinating. And further, in regulated states, available nuclear capacity—a 100 megawatt increase in available nuclear capacity in a state—saw a 0.58 percent rise in clean electricity, as opposed to the deregulated states, which saw a 0.29 percent rise. So, if you have, at least this is what the the research is showing, and of course, it's not encompassing of every. Factor, You would see that regulated states incorporate nuclear capacity more efficiently into their grid, Mm -hmm. considering that the same increase in nuclear capacity is correlated with a higher percentage increase from clean electricity. And so a lot of that, I think, has, in my opinion, in previous research, previous research and opinions describe, you know, you've got this integrated resource plan and Mm -hmm. renewables inherently are difficult to integrate onto the grid. When you have a large capacity source like nuclear, if you can plan around that in a vertically integrated model, I think that is more efficient for creating synergies between nuclear and renewables. So yeah.
0: So why is it that the vertically integrated situation works better?
1: Um, In this case,
0: I mean, I don't want to say like in every single case, just to qualify that.
1: For sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think both models are, you know, flawed to a certain extent. I mean, nothing is perfect, but... Yeah. We're
0: really talking you know, about trade-offs, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's everything with uh, policy. Like yeah. any policy implemented is going to have new problems. You just hope that those problems are more fixable than the previous problems. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people don't really accept that, that no policy is a silver bullet. But mm. in, you know, gosh, I think there was there's a, a paper written about... Forget the author right now, but uh, it was really instrumental in my understanding of price floors and the pricing mechanisms in the wholesale electricity market. And so, when you have uh, renewables that can bid in at zero dollars, eventually, in a deregulated wholesale market, you have, if you get up to a certain level of renewable penetration, you reach a place where there's no one to provide a price price floor for those renewable energies. And they eventually like price themselves out of the market. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I find the, that in vertically integrated models, you can more efficiently integrate renewables because you're able to take into account for the larger capacity of nuclear. And I think that's something that We've seen has forced nuclear out of economic competition in the deregulated markets because of that because nobody can compete with zero dollars bids into the market that's just not sustainable
0: or or we pay you bids into the market (laughs) Uh, yeah right it's it's hard to it's hard to top that yeah the thing where the price floor thing is interesting is that similar to or is that basically just the situation in California, where it's like there's so much solar going at once that everybody's like, "Yeah, what do we do with this?" Actually,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, i, I found the paper. Uh, Jorge Blasco's "The Renewable Energy Policy Paradox," and yeah, in in California, the I mean, ultimately, it's all balancing the grid is a about matching demand with supply. And you've got, you've got supply in the middle of the day and everybody knows about the duck curve and you're trying to shift that forward mm-hmm. um, into the night. And so these, these wholesale markets, ultimately, like you see how cheap people will talk about how cheap renewable energy is. And I think in, in my understanding of the situation, it's cheap for me, but not cheap for you. Mm-hmm. and i think the the reason for these deregulated markets is that it allows allows the marginal cost of production to be to play a bigger role in the market rather than a long run average total cost in which a vertically integrated utility could you know eat some of the or absorb some of the short term fluctuations in the market in order mm. for long-term stability. And gotcha. right now the, the wholesale markets are not necessarily adequately providing that stability. So. Wow. So
0: that's really fascinating. I mean, it's sort of amazing to watch this experiment come apart. Yeah. It seems like there is great hope for, what the RTO could bring to the grid, the problems it could solve, which aren't fake problems by the way. Problems with incumbent utilities not living up to their end of the bargain or becoming corrupt or becoming a predatory monopoly or whatever. I don't want to just dismiss the people who implemented this as nothing but cynical opportunists who conspired to destroy the grid. I don't think that's helpful.
1: (laughs) yeah and and i mean like if you look at really a lot of the you know you go back to point beach one and two i think that's i think that was the the reactors that's often described by brett uh brett Kugelmass had Mm -hmm. a description of point beach one and two and just how incredibly cheap they were compared to modern reactors Mm -hmm. and you see the alara as low as reasonably achievable that that Oh, gosh, what what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, as low as reasonably achievable, that mandate. You know, ultimately, in a vertically integrated utility, it's a lot easier to pass off increased costs for nuclear in yeah. terms of like a double safe, a double containment, or other such. In my opinion, kind of superfluous uh, safety regs, safety, ma- yeah, those safety regs. If you get a fixed rate of return. And you're like, well, this is necessary to achieve as low as reasonably achievable in a vertically integrated utility model. You would assume, and you saw that in the 80s, a lot of the rising costs of nuclear can be associated with that vertically integrated model. So in some sense, you might say that economic competitiveness in a wholesale market might help reduce those regulatory pressures, but of course it doesn't because the regulatory body isn't trying to maximize profit for the nuclear Mm -hmm. power plant. They're just trying to regulate it to be safe, Mm -hmm. which, you know, of course is their job, but those regulations aren't going to go away just because now nuclear has to compete in the wholesale market, you know? (laughs) So I, you know, in some ways I wish Or you could imagine a scenario in which nuclear is forced to compete. They become more nimble and more streamlined in their regulatory processes. But that just hasn't really been the case. And I think post-Fukushima, you know, it's, I don't know, it's gotten even worse in some senses.
0: Right. I think Adam Stein, Ted Norhouse, and a few others at BTI have been doing a great job of covering new scales Struggles with the yeah. NRC's approval process, which yeah. seems like a nightmare to me. Like every time I read yeah, one of the BTI I, blog updates, I'm just like,
1: "Ooh, <laughs> yeah." That's you know, that's that's kind of why I fall really in the in the more traditional BWR PWR camp of reactors that already have uh, regulatory understanding. You know, mm-hmm. I think right now the NRC is going through a little bit of a situation in which they're trying to grapple around these new SMR technologies. How do we regulate them? Do they need a full like containment zone around them? Not a containment zone. I forget the word, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Like so, it, I mean they're new, they're new technologies. So that's going to create difficulties in any regulatory body, but especially one that is I mean, frankly, kind of antagonistic as the NRC yeah. in terms of what decisions it's going to make, how quickly it can make those decisions, and fr- how motivated it feels to resolve these issues. When you only yeah. have the Sierra Club and the NRDC showing up to some of your public comment like yeah. situations, you're getting the worst of the worst information on what you should do and the worst of the right. worst feedback on it.
1: Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I think that'll be, it'll be, will certainly be interesting to see where it goes over the next few years um, in terms of licensing. But yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this: what What's next for you in terms of things you want to look at with nuclear? Like, did this research set any other things off in your head where you're like, "Oh, I need to look at this now"?
1: You know, I think in in some ways. It kind of solidified a lot of my understanding and thesis around investing in nuclear. And I mm-hmm. think if, if I were to be completely honest, what's next for me, I, I've been doing a lot of investing in nuclear technologies, I mean, specifically uranium, that's really one of the only ways that you can get there. Mm-hmm. So post-grad, I'm probably going to do that full-time work on the side and also do like my own type of nuclear advocacy travel around the country and hopefully buy a van and get out there, go hopefully save Diablo Canyon before it's too late, do stuff like that. That's awesome. But yeah. I mean, just, just furthering my understanding of the sector is something that I've always wanted. And I think this research has definitely opened up so many different paths that i Thought I knew a lot about, but of course, I mean, in anything, you only have scratched the surface um, sure. in terms of learning everything you can.
0: So you can yeah. drill down as far far as you're willing to.
1: Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so. yeah. So I have sort of a generational question to ask you. Mm-hmm. I see, help me. I'm an old millennial. I'm a crypt keeper on the internet, yeah. um, ancient as it is. And... <laughs> I feel like I've noticed two dominant strains in how your generation Zoomers feel about the future. And one, uh, this tends to come out of people who were involved with the gang campaign or things like it, is very can-do, very positive, like really excited to solve problems. And then Mm -hmm. there seems to be another very frightened of these problems and very pessimistic about anyone's ability to solve anything. Is that a correct read on the divide I'm seeing here?
1: I I would definitely say so. You know, I I think the whole Greta Thunberg sunrise movement, that is, it's almost just like laying down and throwing up your hands and like mm-hmm. the the experiment of modernity, like... Is over before Mm -hmm. we've even tried to, you know, continue it. Mm -hmm. And I think for myself and my brother, who is an environmental biologist getting his Mm -hmm. master's degree out in Colorado, I think this idea of like constant pessimism and this clash between you know, what might be seen as traditional environmentalism, which is industrialism is bad mm-hmm. and we can't coexist. The problems of modernity got, got us in this and we can't get out of it using those avenues. I think that is really tiring for people who like really want to solve the problems. And I think there's a path dependency that we're on right now. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you like the idea of living by yourself in a commune where you grow your own food and whatever
0: mm-hmm.
1: nine to ten billion people in the world cannot do that <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah. that's that's impossible for every person to do that. I mean you can go do that because you live in a wealthy country and you have that privilege, but not everybody can do that and if we're looking to feed this many people and you know have everybody have a decent standard of living we can't go backwards like Mm -hmm. and so yeah i definitely think that that is something that i struggle with i think i'm pretty optimistic about Mm -hmm. the future i think you know i i personally struggle with like looking at the trend of humanity getting wealthier and wealthier and people rising out of poverty life expectancy rising and then Mm. I dug deep into one sector in terms of like energy and I'm like, what are we doing? Like, we're all so stupid, Like, (laughs) this is, you know? And, and so I think in some ways that, that is a little
0: disconcerting.
1: Yeah. Especially when I'm like, how many other sectors do I think that were, you know, do I think that the answer is like plain and clear? And then if I were to dig down it. Turns out that everybody's just messing it up, but I think the the wisdom of the crowds, and I think like the idea that people feel like we're messing it up is an integral part of getting better. Um, yes,
0: yeah. yeah, I think I think that's true too. What both of the strands have in common is I think a healthy skepticism of existing institutions and how mm-hmm. they're discharging their duties.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I still feel that my generation is like far more open to different ideas, but I do think that it's going to take a while before.
0: Yeah. um, Well, and you don't want to do the thing either where I think this was a mistake That previous generations have made where they, it's sort of easy to be like, well, the the kids get it, so they'll solve it. Right. We can't have that type of mentality. That's what's so wonderful about you and I talking and you Mm -hmm. consulting with Meredith on some things. Yeah. Is that this really needs to be an intergenerational moment because generational politics really only get you so far. They become a meme very, Mm -hmm. very easily. And it stops feeling like you live in a society where like everyone has duties responsibilities to each other you know
1: yeah and i in in many ways i think that i think everybody kind of feels this way about politics right now and just that everybody's looking for like the easy solution Mm -hmm. the buzzword you know i i was listening to AOC talk about the Keystone XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. And she goes, the reason we built the Keystone X pipeline is to export natural gas abroad. And, you know, that's something that she really said. And A, the Keystone XL pipeline is primarily to import oil <laughs> from Canada, <Yeah>. not natural <laughs> gas, not to export it abroad. And I'm like, this is this is the woman who wrote the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Like, and you know, and many people feel is the is you know yeah, the leading voice on this, yeah. Our, our energy future, and that was just shocking to me. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I got like incredibly upset. I was like, "What are we doing here?" And a lot of my my friends just felt like, "Just shut up, like, okay, whatever." But you know, <laughs> we do need like a real sense of moderating, intelligent, like uh voice that is not gonna play the political partisanship game and is is gonna like do what's right regardless of whether it follows the party lines. And I think that's that's why I felt so strongly about Yang. I didn't agree with all of his policies, but sure. I felt that he was a Discerning individual, at mm-hmm. least, and yeah,
0: so well, and he was obviously inspiring to everybody that worked for him, yeah. You know, I, sure. I mean, when I, I live out in LA, and you know, every time I saw Yang campaign stuff because there was a bunch of it out of here, like everyone was just pumped. Like yeah. they were, they were very enthusiastic, and you know, when I look at all of this, I think you're right that we need people who are moderate, or I would say sober in their psychology yeah. about what's going on. You know, we don't want to fall into the the golden mean fallacy, where whatever is moderate yeah. in the middle yeah. is yeah. necessarily right. But we we want somebody who has who has prudence right? Mm -hmm. Who has, has the virtues of leadership, but we would also need, and I think this is what's inspiring to me about your work and the things you want to do is an increase in energy literacy in general. Like the way energy is, has been so mumified that it feels impossible for a lot of people to get into it or to understand it, or they think they already know, because of the way it's been memed. So I'm hoping that... I mean, I feel like there's going to be a return to energy politics over the next five to 10 years, and I hope that's a great opportunity for us to increase our understanding of just energy system basics. Not everybody needs to be an expert, but we could stand to have a better handle society-wide on what the hell we're actually doing with things like the grid.
1: Yeah. And I think the the rise in the gas prices is, is like just the beginning mm-hmm. of what I think is going to be people having far more awareness of where their energy comes from, what energy is, what a kilowatt hour is. Like, there's so many things on TikTok already of just like people talking, like young kids talking about making jokes about the high gas prices. And yeah. for years, that was something that like nobody really even thought of nobody talked about and like to me that is just the the beginning of people coming to recognize that that energy rules everything and Mm -hmm. paying attention to energy policy and maybe maybe like stopping the keystone xl pipeline might have a great veneer of morality and whatever but Mm -hmm. you know if we see these continue rise in oil prices, I don't, I don't know how many people are going to all of a sudden feel so morally down.
0: satisfied. But, yeah. yeah,
1: like, yeah. like ultimately, you know, it's poor people who are more exposed to these price increases, mm-hmm. and to to deny them of cheap energy is um, really to deny them of. You know a, a valid a validating way of life that allows us to move when we want, do all the things that we want. And I think I feel that I feel the same way about people not wanting to finance energy projects in Africa, which I that's been a big thing that yeah, I've. It's so felt. criminal. I was like, oh my god, what are we doing? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I think. The thing that people don't fully appreciate is that being poor is expensive and that's because of proportionality. Yeah. (laughs) That's why you're more vulnerable to price increases because things are already expensive for you. You know, I've lived near the poverty line and, you know, you're praying every day you get in your car that there's not something wrong with it or that your tire doesn't pop or whatever Mm -hmm. because you don't know how you'll be able to make rent. If that goes yeah. up and the way small fluctuations can really impact your ability to even feed yourself. So I think you're right about all of that. I totally support energy projects in Africa. I think some of the cop stuff about putting a damper on that is absolutely insane. But more importantly, I think we got a lot of positive work to do and I think we're going to do it. Yeah, so. for sure. I want to thank you for coming on, man. This was really, really great. And I hope it's the first of many conversations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So before we
0: go, where can people find?
1: So I talk a lot about uranium investing and energy and the intersection between that on Twitter at Memd Capital is my energy page. Um, Mm -hmm. My personal page is probably a little bit less interesting to folks, (laughs) but... Yeah. So Memd Capital, talk a lot about uranium. I've been doing that for two years now. And it's a great way to you know, leverage what I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast already probably appreciate, which is the, the relative benefits of nuclear power that will be exposed over the coming decades. I think you know, able, being able to monetize that for yourself and to put that back into the community and to hopefully create positive change through, through your investing in mm-hmm. uh, uranium and energy and understanding that is something that I'm really passionate about. So Memd Capital. Yep.
0: All right, great. Well, people can All find right. that in the show notes. Aiden, I'll talk to you later. Everybody else, stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant, my friends. Till next week.